Thanks, Lauren. All righty. Well, what a strange passage to look at on uh, uh, Christmas Eve. My name's Toby. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, as Lauren said, for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking, preparing for Christmas by looking at four uh, women mentioned in Jesus' family line. And one of the strange things, when you open up the New Testament, the first thing you read about are not the angels or the wise men, or even the baby, but Jesus' family line. And the family line establishes Jesus as a real person in history, that he wasn't some mythological character, not some idea, but he was a real person in real history with a real family. And in his family line, in the lead up to Christmas, we've been looking at the five women of Jesus' family and seeing how each of them tells us something about why Jesus had to come into the world. And today, uh, we're at the fourth of the fifth women. Today, we're looking at the story of Bathsheba. Tomorrow morning, the story of Mary. Now, this is really one of the most famous stories in history. And Leonard Cohen, his famous song, Hallelujah, is based on this event, famously, masterfully covered by Jeff Buckley. And this is uh, an extract from that song. Stunning song, isn't it? Anyone enjoy this song? Okay, lots of us. Um, it's a beautiful story. It's a ballad about sexual ecstasy. It's about crushing heartbreak and existential doubt. And based on this very story of Bathsheba and David. Uh, but it's not just singers who have reflected on this story. This is a painting by Rembrandt. And he paints Bathsheba with all her sensuous curves, her hips exposed. In her hand, do you notice, is the letter from David, making his intentions incredibly clear. Notice her face. There's worry uh, and concern, and the look of someone who knows what's required of them and is aware of what the consequences will be. Sadly, most people in history have rather characterised Bathsheba as a sex kitten uh, who bewitches King David like the sculpture by the American artist Ben Victor. Now, as we will see, this couldn't be further from the truth. So I want to have a look at this story. And actually, it's a Christmas story somehow. I'm going to show you that by the end. But it teaches us something about why Jesus came into this world. So pick it up. This is how the story begins. I've put it on the screen for you. This is how it begins. In the spring, at the time the kings would go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From, Ruth, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So here we see a great man in the wrong place at the wrong time. His men are at the battle in the fields fighting for his kingdom. Why wasn't he with them? 
While they spent themselves and risked their lives, he was killing time on a rooftop like Hugh Hefner or Dan Belzerian dressed in a dressing gown. That's what he's doing. And as he stands there in the cool of the evening, he looks out from his vantage point and he sees a woman bathing who is very beautiful. Now, there's no suggestion that the woman was acting provocatively, and it's not wrong for David to notice her beauty. But what we do know is that David, should have, what he should have done, the spark of lust ignites, the moment to flee it is, is when it first flares up, not when it's burning down your house. But his glance turns into a gaze. He doesn't stamp out the spark, he fans it into a fire, and he sends someone to find out who she is. The message come back. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So it wasn't, wasn't out of ignorance that he will do what he does. He knew that this was another man's wife. In fact, one of the greatest men in his entire family, an incredibly faithful, loyal, one of the highest officials uh, who is fighting for him. That's who the wife of this man is. And not only is she the wife of this man, she's also the wife or the granddaughter of Ahithophel, I can't pronounce all these words, right? Eliam's father. But David ignores all of that. These are two men that he's bound to. Two men have done great things to him. And, um, And this is a woman married to one of them, the granddaughter of another, and uh, instead he sent messengers to get her. We're not, we, we had told her name earlier, but David never uses her name. He treats her as an object to be used for his own pleasure. He sends messengers to get her. And she came to him. She has little choice. The most powerful man in her world asks her over, and she, how can she argue with him? And so she came and slept with him, and then she left. Then some weeks later, David receives a note, perhaps through the lens of a messenger, saying, I'm pregnant. And he now realizes that the situation is not as clear as he thought it would be. The consequences of the flames of lust are starting to get out of control, and so he has to cover up. He brings the husband Uriah back from the battlefield in the hope that he will sleep with his wife and get her pregnant, or so so it'll seem, but Uriah was too honourable a man to do this. In verse 11, he says, The ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my, my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love with my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing. So he won't take privilege of sleeping with his wife while his mates are out sleeping on the battlefield. What a contrast he is to the king who takes advantage of his men by sleeping with their wives while they are out on the battlefield. So David, he can't get Uriah to sleep with his wife, and so he sends him back to the battlefield carrying his own death warrant. The letter reads, put Uriah out in front, where the fighting's fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down 
and die. That that is the message to the commander of the army. And David gives that letter, not to some third-party messenger, he puts it in the hands of Uriah himself. So faithful, so loyal, so trustworthy is this guy that David has no worry that he's going to open it up and have a read before he gets to the front line. He puts it in his hands, and yet that is a man he is plotted to murder to cover up his own sin. It's tragic. And so Joab, the commander of the army, executes the plan, and the report comes back to David from the front line that some men died, and so did Uriah the Hittite. And David responds mercilessly, say to Joab, don't let this upset you. No doubt not just saying it to Joab, but saying it to his own soul, placating his own conscience. Ignore this, David. It's all right. This is okay. But when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Did she know what David had done? We're not told. But there she is, newly married to her husband's killer and David thinks he's got away with it. It's all cleared up. Fire is put out. Every loose string tied up. The palace, the palace staff know what's happened. They know the injustice that he has committed. But it looks as though he has got away with it. But, we are told, in verse 27, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David forgot that the Lord God, the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and no secrets are hidden, he is the one who is watching. When everyone else is blind to what has happened, God is watching. He may be silent, but he is not sightless. What sins are you hiding from God that no one else sees? God would say, bring it into the light that I might wash it away. The thing David did displeased the Lord. Now one of the things we love to do is sing about the love of God in church, but one of the other great, very great things is the displeasure of God. It's a wonderful thing. It means God cares about Bathsheba and Uriah, he cares about injustice. I mean, if your son had been murdered by a man who misused his power and slept with your daughter-in-law, you would be furious. And God is furious in this moment. God's anger, it's unfashionable to talk about in our country where injustice is rare, but God's anger is always very precious to those who are victims of injustice. The thing David did displeased the Lord. And praise God, thank God, that he, 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 he does displease him. Thank God that the powerful won't get away with sexual assault and murder forever. So what will the Lord do? Well, in the next chapter, which wasn't read for us, the Lord God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan has a very risky job to do. He has to confront the king of Israel with his sin. The king could just have his head chopped off in a moment. 
So the prophet has a very risky job to do. And so, rather than just confronting David head on, he tells David a story, which goes like this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He raised it, he grew, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a feast for the traveller who had come. So instead he took the one little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. That's the story Nathan tells David. And when David hears of it, he is furious. The man who did this certainly must die. And then Nathan the prophet says to David with piercing directness, you are that man. Many women, and yet you take the one woman that belongs to that one man you riot the hit out. You're the man. You deserve to die. Now what would David do when confronting with who he is and what he's done? Well, look at his response in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. No blame shifting, no minimizing, no excuses. He owns it. And the Lord, and this is the biggest surprise in the story, to be honest. The Lord, set the, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Forgiveness received for a heinous sin. Now, there were consequences for this sin. And you can read about that after this story. Terrible consequences for David. But the Lord forgave him. And here is the good news of God's grace for sinners like you and I. David goes on to write one of the most beautiful uh, songs in the entire Bible, Psalm 51, which describes the experience of being forgiven. It's an epic story. No wonder it's fired the imaginations of so many people in history. Now, as we stop and reflect on this, I said it was a Christmas story. How so? Right? Well, they're part of Jesus' family line, right? This is the first thing we read in the New Testament. But more than that, this story, it teaches us two things about Christmas. The first thing is it tells us is that we need a king from heaven. And that's what Christmas is about. King David, he's the greatest king who ever lived in Israel. No one was as fearless in battle as he was. No one was as compassionate in life as he was. No one loved God more than he did. If ever there could be a king that could lead God's people, he was it. There's never been and never will be a human king to match him. And yet, he takes another man's wife, impregnates her, and to cover up, kills her husband. The consequence of this action will reverberate throughout his life. It'll impact his children, it'll impact the nation, it'll destroy his own life and the people around him. It's a tragic story and it's a reminder that every human leader is flawed. Even the best, the very best, we suffer the consequences of their failures acutely and yet we have such short memories. A new leader comes along and our hopes go along with them. 
and then very quickly we're disappointed again. And that's what this story is about. The greatest king in history was not able to bring what we dream of. In spite of all that God had done for David, and uh, he was a flawed human being. All of us long for a king that is not flawed, a leader that is not flawed, and that's who David points towards. We need a king from heaven. And that's how Jesus' life begins. Remember what the angels announce to the shepherds at the birth of Jesus? Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Here is David's great, great descendant, In the town of David, a saviour is born who won't destroy others by his pride and selfishness, lust and greed. And as we watch Jesus grow up in the Gospels, we see he never mistreats women. He never uses them. The lives of his male followers are not expendable to him. He never makes them pay for his sins. He never tries to cover up the truth. Rather... He always speaks the truth. He protects the vulnerable and he gives his life to cover over the sins of others. What a king. That's the kind of king we all long for and need, a king from heaven. And that's what Christmas is about. We celebrate the birth of a righteous king. You know, we're Australians, so we hate authority. But that's because authorities that usually are placed over over us are incompetent. But when you are given an authority who leads with love and justice, there is no better way to live than under his rule. And that's Jesus. He's the king. There's no one like him. That's the first thing we learn about from this story. We need a king from heaven. And the second thing is this, that we need a king who can save us. The second thing Christmas is about is that the king comes because we have a need. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. Now, this story of Bathsheba and David, many of us identify with Bathsheba, uh, and that's because some of you are victims of injustice. And God wants you to know, just the way the story's told, God's heart is for Bathsheba. He cares about her, and he wants you to know he knows your pain. He sees the wrongdoing, and he set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness through his son Jesus. He will hold everyone to account. But this story is not just a story about our longing for justice, it's also a story about our need for salvation. When Leonard Cohen writes, she tied you to her kitchen chair, she broke your throne and she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah, he's describing how David's lust destroyed him how his throne was broken. There's a documentary that was released just this year about uh, Leonard Cohen uh, and about his song Hallelujah. And um, one of the musicians who's famous for covering this song said something which stood out to me. This is what Eric Church says, country western singer. He says, every night as I sing this song, every night the whole arena sings this song. I've never found anyone that has said, I just don't get it, or I don't think it applies to me. You you can look at the number of artists who have covered this song, and you can pretty pretty quickly tell that it's a timeless masterpiece. It's timeless because 
This song describes the human condition. It's a song about temptation and our inability to overcome our sinful nature, that we need forgiveness and salvation. We know how strong that temptation is and we can't help but give in to it. And we seek to cover up that sin with lies and deception. Perhaps you and I have never murdered anyone. But this story, it holds up a mirror to our souls so that we see ourselves in it. And Christmas is about our need for a king to save us. When Jesus enters the world, the angels announce a saviour has been born. And what's he come to save us from? To save us from our sin. Now some of you are saying, oh yeah, predictable. Okay, I'm in church, of course, Christians telling me I'm a sinner, right? Uh, but uh, notice how David is saved. You know, when God sends the prophet Nathan to confront him, there's a lot we can learn about, about the way God saves a person here. Notice David's he's anxiously trying to cover up. He's in denial about his sin. He doesn't want someone coming and saying, David, you're a sinner. He spun this web of lies. And as a result, God graciously sends Nathan to confront David and here's how he does it. It's amazing. He tells him a story about sheep. Why does Nathan not just cut to the chase? What's with this story? Well, David's conscience needs time to wake up. And Nathan wakes it up with a story about a rich man with many sheep. And the way he steals the poor man's one with a little ewe lamb. And Nathan starts very carefully, very gently, very quietly. And he says, hey, let me just tell you about a case, David. And when David says the man must die, then Nathan knows he has him. And notice something extremely important. When he says, you are the man, that's not the introduction. That's the conclusion. Now, what does that mean? It means a lot. David was a leader, he was, and, and the prophet of God comes to him, and he's lied. He's committed, adult, he's committed murder. Why didn't Nathan immediately burst through David's door and simply say, I know what you've done. How dare you? Why doesn't he do that? It's because, not because he lacks courage. It's because he's the prophet of God, and he's reflecting the grace of God. So it's very easy to condemn someone in such a way that you just raise their defense mechanisms up so high that they'll never ever repent. You, how dare you? How dare you did this? How dare you? And as soon as that happens, defense mechanism. You know, it's right to tell the truth to someone, but it's even better when you tell the truth in such a way that the person comes to realization of what they have done. And if you condemn a person in in confronting them with the truth, it can make them very difficult for them to repent. More so, moreover, when you do that, when you just speak the truth in a condemning way, you're not on the side of God. You remember John 3.16? There's a verse immediately after John 3.16, which should be just as famous, which says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And that's what Nathan does. He doesn't come condemning. He comes awakening David 
to see his own sin for himself that he might repent. That's what Christianity is about. That's why God comes into the world. He confronts the world with our sin, not to condemn us, but to save us. And this, I think, is why some of us find Christmas so difficult. We go home to the people who know us more than anyone else, and they speak the truth to us more than anyone else. But rather than receiving grace, most often we receive condemnation for what they see in our lives. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the Christians in this room went to their families this Christmas, able to speak the truth, Dad, I think you've drunk too much. Mum, let's bring everyone together. I know you're anxious and you've been working really hard, but hey, let's be peaceful to one another. Speaking the truth, but with grace and gentleness, because that's Christianity. God comes into the world and he says, hey guys, there's a problem. I love you but I want you to realize you're actually offside with me. You've sinned. I want to forgive you. I've sent my son to die for you. I want you to be washed clean, but you do need to turn back and come back to me. Because there's no salvation without repentance. You know, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't shift blame, he acknowledges his guilt openly and Nathan responds, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. We love to hear the Lord's taken away your sin, but do we love to say, I've sinned against the Lord? You can't have one without the other. But that's why Jesus come. He comes and he says, hey, I'm willing to die for you, to take away your sin. And he says, will you say to me, I have sinned? And when you do, it's all gone. In Christ, God comes to save the world, and he does it by dying for us. And he says, Toby, you're the man. He says, you're the woman. He exposes our sin, not to condemn us, but that we might be saved and forgiven. That's what Christmas is all about. There's a wonderful story which I heard a couple of years ago about a Tsar of Russia. And um, one of the Tsar's men came to him and he was on his deathbed and he said, hey, I have a young son. Would you look after my son? Because I'm not going to be there for him. And so the man dies. The Tsar takes his son into his life and treats him as his own son. And the, this, this young man grows up, enters the workforce, works for the army, but ends up having a drinking problem, a gambling problem, and in order to pay for his gambling problem, he starts stealing money from the army. And his debts get so out of control that one night he looks down at the impossible debt that he owes and he thinks, I've got no way out of this. I'm just, I'm gonna kill myself. And so he drinks himself, just keeps drinking in order psych up the courage to kill himself but he drinks so much that he passes out and he doesn't get the chance to kill himself and that night the Tsar it was his custom to walk around among the soldiers but dressed up not as the Tsar just as a common man just to see what was the morale like in the army and he, he, he walks into the tent of this man that he'd raised as his own son looking after him for his friend and he sees the debts 
on the table before him and he sees the gun, he sees the alcohol and he realizes what this young man has done and he goes over and he writes on the list of debts, the czar will pay all and then he gets out of there and the next morning the young man wakes up and he looks down and he realizes the czar, he knows everything and yet at the same time he's accepted me. The czar will make good the debt and uh, the seal was there. The Tsar saw everything. The king had been here, and yet he saw everything about me, and yet he still loved me. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. Jesus Christ is God come among us, dressed up like one of us, really as a human being, and he looks at us, and he sees everything, and he offers us forgiveness and mercy. And that's why it's such good news. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I love the Jeff Buckley cover of Cohen's Hallelujah. It's hauntingly beautiful, full of longing and melancholy. But as Leonard Cohen once said, it's a secular song. Hope doesn't really break into the song. Uh, There's no answer from God in the song. And so there's another version which I discovered a couple of years ago by a band called Cloverton who wrote some lyrics to the melody of Cohen's song that that focuses more on the grace of God. And I've asked the band to lead us in this song. We are all going to sing to this, is that right? All right, let me pray for us and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder that Christmas is all about your grace. Love for the undeserving. Then the Lord Jesus, you came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through his death. It's ironic and weird that in reflecting on his birth, we're reflecting also on his death, but that is why he came into the world, to save sinners of whom we are. Father, we confess and admit that like David, like everyone around us, that we have sinned against you, the Lord. We're truly sorry for our sins. Please forgive us and change us and renew our lives so that we live to please and honour you. And this Christmas, as we spend time with family, the people that know us the best and whom we know the best, the people to whom we often speak the truth with too much bluntness and too much condemnation and not enough grace, help us this year to be agents of grace and mercy and undeserved love. Help us to treat people better than they deserve. Help us to bear with one another with all their faults and failings because that is how you have treated us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.